0: morning everyone my name is Sylvia Mauser our selection this morning is from Daniel 7 I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is God's word. Good morning, my name is Taylor Reevely. It's good to be with you again. Let's pray as we open God's word together. Lord, we are about to open your word to your people. And it very well could just be another literary work that we've given attention to, and this just be a book club. But Lord, we believe that your word to us is alive It is living and active, and by Your Word, Your Spirit will work in our hearts to stir our affections and our attitudes to that of Christ Jesus. And so would You fix our eyes on Him? Would You help us be attentive and hang on Your every promise that we would have the assurance that we need and long for to follow Him? In Your name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've got a question for you, and it will require some deep thinking. What is something that you are afraid to try because you're uncertain if it will work out in the end? What's something you're afraid to try because you don't know if it's going to work out or not? I imagine some of you probably are risk takers and you're like nothing, absolutely nothing in all the world. Probably some of you are risk-averse, and it's like everything. For me, um, I'll just be honest, it's skydiving, okay? And, and I don't really have a fear of flying. I think flying would be fine. It's the, um, it's the fear of that 0.0001% chance that it doesn't work out in the end. Because if you know how skydiving works, you jump out of an airplane, and if it doesn't work, it's, it's a catastrophe. There's no coming back from it. And so um, I, I definitely th- like lump that into my risk factor is like the consequence of failure. In our passage today, we see that following Jesus has some significant risk to it, with extremely high consequences. And Jesus offers assurance to those who follow Him that it will, in fact, work out in the end. So would you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19, and we will continue where we left off last week in verse 27. Matthew 19 verse 27 says this, Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who is left... Houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now I like to give you usually the bottom line at the top. So right out the gate, what's the bottom line this morning? Is that it will be worth it. To follow Jesus in the new creation. It will be worth it to leave everything, to give everything up, to follow him. Now, like almost every time we open the Bible, we need to zoom out a little bit. Okay, in particular, because it says, Peter said, in reply, that's our our opening phrase, in reply to what? Okay? We need the context here. And in particular, when you get in passages like this one, where there's some confusing things about thrones and judging tribes of Israel, you've got to zoom out so you don't miss the forest and what's happening in the scriptures for what is happening with that one peculiar tree. So from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we can expect that we will be personally introduced to the king, Jesus, and the kingdom of heaven that he is bringing. And that kingdom is upside down in nature. It, it actually is right side up, and the world we live in is upside down, but that's the conflict that we encounter on every page in Matthew's gospel, is that Jesus is leading and bringing an upside down kingdom, reorienting humans into a new way of living. One of the unique things about this kingdom is that in Jesus' kingdom, humans flourish and become whole as they were made to be. And Matthew writes this gospel, this narrative account of Jesus' life in such a way that he is highlighting almost on every page how Jesus fulfills all of what comes before in your Bible. How all of the Bible All of history makes sense because of Jesus. Now today, those meta-themes in Matthew's writing shine in what's admittedly a a bit of a peculiar passage in Matthew's account. Those themes are the broad characteristics of this forest that we're traveling through. And when we come to this peculiar looking tree, we need to keep our eye on where we are in the forest. So how does this passage then fit in the narrower context of our own study? Well, two weeks ago, Matthew highlighted Jesus as the one who welcomes children to himself. In fact, Jesus points to a child as the one who gets the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is for, is for people like children who get their humble dependence on Christ that is required to enter. And then last week, if you remember, we encountered a rich young man who was not like the child because he had no need. He came to Jesus basking in his own performance, pleading his own merit. And then he was barred from entry by his own attachment to his possessions. He did not need Christ, so to speak, so he did not get Christ. And he left Jesus, it says, with great sorrow. This week, we're picking up the story. After the rich young man had departed in his sorrow, and the disciples are left with Jesus, and they had marveled with astonishment that anyone could ever get in the kingdom of heaven because they had just witnessed the most qualified person get denied access because of an attachment to his possessions. And Peter, in his typical fashion, through Matthew's writing, asked Jesus a question. And we'll follow this really simple structure as we work through the passage this morning. Peter's question, Jesus' specific response to that question, and then Jesus' general response to that question. So let's now turn our attention to Peter's question in verse 27. Peter's question is basically this. What about us? What about us? What's going to happen? Is it going to be worth it? He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now Peter's replying to that specific experience that they had just witnessed of the rich young man and Jesus' subsequent teaching that only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And what you need to notice baked into the question is that Peter is contrasting himself with that rich young man. Their experiences are entirely opposite. You see, when Jesus called the rich young man saying, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Come, follow me, is the invitation to the rich young man. And when the, when the young man heard this, even just the invitation, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So barricaded by his stuff, He chose his stuff over Christ. The choice he made was to love his stuff and what it afforded him over and against instead of loving Christ. He chose the world instead of Jesus. And when that is the choice you make, you will leave sorrowful every time. You might like your stuff, but you will be holistically lacking and your inner self will be not just restless, but filled with a great sorrow at its own restlessness. Now, when Peter asks this question here, certainly he has in mind his own response when Jesus invited him with those words, come, follow me. In Matthew 4.18, we see this account unfold. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two, old, two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. You can see the contrast between the responses. One is, this man says, my stuff is just calling for me. There's stuff that needs attention. There's projects that need fixing I got to get back to it. And with great sorrow, he leaves Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, heard this call of Jesus. He's in the boat. He's fixing stuff. And he leaves it where it lies on the beach to follow Jesus without hesitation, without a second thought, without concern for the stuff back home in the garage. And immediately they left their father, their job right there, life as they knew it, and followed Jesus. There were a couple other disciples mentioned in that account, but Peter's story and the twelve's story is pretty similar. In Matthew 9, Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. Matthew gets up out of his tax booth and followed Jesus. In John 1, Philip tells Nathanael that he's found this long-awaited Messiah. Come and see, and they run to Jesus. Luke 6 makes it clear then that Jesus looked at all of his disciples all those who had given something or everything to follow him, and chose from them twelve. You know their names? I, don't, I have to read their names. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, the doubter, the other James, Simon, Judas, and the other Judas, the betrayer. These all, in their own way, had left everything to follow Jesus. And Peter is representing them saying, what then do we have? How will we be certain? How can we know? What is our reward? Now we have really no insight into Peter's tone of voice. I'm using kind of an urgent tone of voice here, but we have no real idea what, how he said this. What was in his mind and heart is not certain, so I'm careful, I want to be careful, not to add a tone where there's no tone communicated, but it does seem that at its fundamental level, what Peter is asking for is some baseline assurance that it will all work out in the end. Jesus, have we done enough? Jesus, will it be worth it for us? I want to pause here. Is this not also our question, really? That you may have followed Jesus for a week or for a lifetime, and you come to him again. Have have I done enough? Am I safe? Am I secure? Will it be worth it? That's the question we will ask him when we meet him. That's the question we would ask him if he were here today. Not tell us about dinosaurs. We'd love to know about dinosaurs, but the, the deep question my soul needs to know is, am I safe? Do I have a place in the kingdom? I want 100%, with no exceptions, certainty that things will work out in the end. Now, while we can't necessarily import a tone or a a reason for this, a motive for this question into the text, we can infer a couple things about Peter's question because of how Jesus responds to him. Because Jesus does not rebuke Peter like Jesus so often does. Peter asks some dumb questions, and Jesus lets him know pretty much like right away. But not here. In, In this moment, Jesus does console him. Jesus does offer him assurance. Now, Jesus' response continues beyond the chapter's conclusion, and we will pick up the rest of his response next week. And there is a warning baked into this response, but here on the front end, it is loaded with assurance. And he responds with a specific guarantee, a specific promise for these 12. Okay? Now, you you can't necessarily apply this to yourself, but you need to know what's happening here because it fits in the forest that Matthew is leading us through of fulfillment in this new creation, this new way of being in the kingdom. So look with me at verse 28. The specific answer Jesus gives the 12 is that you will rule. It says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, there's a lot contained in this one verse, and I'll do my best to bring out for you what I perceive to be the gold. And at the same time, there's so much that we could miss the forest for this tree. And so I'll try to keep us above the tree line just enough so we know where we are and see how this all holds together. Now, the first thing to notice is Jesus begins with this familiar word, truly, which is our word, amen. It means this is absolutely true, without question. Bet the farm on this. He is speaking with authority, and our awareness should be heightened to the truthfulness of the claim. The second thing you need to notice is the word which is translated in the ESV at least as "when," um, in the new world, okay? That is a peculiar word in the original language. It's only used one other time, and it's used in the passage that Matt read a moment ago during our prayer, and it's translated as regeneration there in Titus 3. Now, the word is is a compound word from again is the first part of the word, and Genesis is the second part of the word. So you've got again Genesis, and the translation here says new world. And what I want to suggest is that I think even the word order here in the sentence could be clearer as we consider not a new world, but a new creation. The word order reads differently in the original text. You who followed me in the new creation. You who have followed me in the new creation. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit on twelve thrones. The sense is exactly the same, so don't lose the forest for this one tree. But I think this is significant, because what Jesus has been doing all along is inaugurating His kingdom here on earth, this new way of being human. You could call it a new creation. And then, after announcing that new creation, that new kingdom on the Sermon on the Mount in early part of Matthew, he comes down from the mountain and begins to recreate. And he takes chaos, which is the opposite or the undoing of creation, and recreates it. You saw that with the storm, the chaos of the storm, which is then calmed by Jesus. You see that with the the sickness and decay in the body, which is a chaos that Jesus then heals. You see that in the demons that have overtaken people and Him relieving them and casting them out, establishing a new way of being. And so, to follow Jesus then means that you are following Him in this new creation way, in this new creation reality. Certainly, You should have in mind that new world that is coming when Jesus recreates a new heaven and a new earth for his people. But you need to notice that the new creation work has already begun in our midst. And in fact, these 12 are participating. They're following Jesus in this way, in this new creation. And they are, in a sense, then, the first comers in this new kingdom. Okay, so he's going to treat these 12 differently than the rest of us. Okay? The third thing you should notice here in this verse is the title that Jesus uses for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, that's a term that you might rightly think is Jesus identifying with his humanity. He is divine, he is fully God, and yet he is also a son of man. Son of God, son of man. That's right. But the reader should also understand that Matthew is aiming to highlight how Jesus fulfills all of the scriptures and would remember, the, the hearers of this original text would remember, that there was a prophet in the Old Testament named Daniel who had a vision of one who was a son of of man, And in that vision, the nations of the earth are in uproar. And in this vision that Daniel has, it enters the throne room of the ancient of days. And in that throne room, the books are open, and the judgment is given. In those adversaries, the nations are leveled. And in that throne room, it says what Sylvia read a moment ago, Behold, the clouds of heaven... I've already clued you into the fact that Matthew's illuminating Jesus' fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is pointing to through these words is a future day when the Son of Man will sit down, His work completed, on a throne, unrivaled and exalted. In that person, That one who receives all dominion and glory is the king who is enlisting citizens into his kingdom with the words, Come, follow me. But if you read further in Daniel's vision, a few verses later, we find that this dominion of the Son of Man is shared with his people. In verse 27 it says, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Okay. Who are the people of the saints of the Most High in Daniel's writing? It would have been Israel. It would have been these 12 tribes who had been kicked out of Israel by the Babylonian forces, made slaves in Babylon during Daniel's writing. And when Daniel's writing, the people of Israel who read these words would have had a vision, a hope, That one day God would not forget them. That one day they would reign with him. Now go back with me to Matthew 19, okay? Jesus is promising the fulfillment of Daniel 7 in himself and in this future reign. And he is promising to the 12 apostles that you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's happening here is revolutionary in our reading of Matthew's gospel. That there are 12 apostles is not an accident. It's not a coincidence that there are 12. Those 12 apostles are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And while these 12 tribes of Israel anticipated reigning with the Son of Man, Jesus is communicating that that promise to those 12 tribes has been fulfilled through the 12 apostles. The point all along, throughout all of history, is that God would create a people for himself. In the Old Testament, that was ethnic Israel, In the New Testament, through Jesus, through following him in this new creation, the ethnic barrier is removed and those people are those who get Jesus. The church of which the 12 apostles were the first. So there is here an eye to the future reign, but there's also an eye to the present. Because you see, the 12 tribes had rejected the Son of Man. They had seen Jesus come and said, surely he cannot be the long-awaited one. And as the story progresses through Matthew's gospel, it is those 12 tribes and the religious leaders that led Jesus to the cross. It was, however, these 12 apostles that had accepted him, that had responded to his invitation to come and follow who had left everything to follow him. And so they would be the ones then who would reign as a symbolic fulfillment of the promises to Israel, who would instead now be under their judgment for their rejection of Jesus, along with all who would reject him. <laughs> okay, did that close the can of worms for you? <laughs> of all that is happening here in verse 28? I don't, I don't think it did. But I do think that that is the point we are to notice. That's where Matthew's moving in this whole overarching theme. And that is what Jesus intended to communicate. Because his response to Peter begins with a specific application, a specific assurance to these 12 right here. Through them, God is fulfilling His promises to His people. Through them, God is welcoming non-Jews, into the kingdom of heaven. So Peter can be absolutely sure that these 12 will not be overlooked or forgotten in the kingdom of heaven because God's plan to fulfill all things begins with them. It's an essential fulfillment, so to speak, and it's essential for you and me. Because then Jesus moves from the specific answer regarding the future of these 12 who left everything to follow him with a general answer to all who are invited to follow him. And his general answer is this. Everyone will flourish in the kingdom of heaven. Look with me at verse 29. And everyone, he says, who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We've just encountered a rich young man who could not leave his possessions because they were great. He did not enter the kingdom of heaven. He did not flourish. His soul was not satisfied. He did not follow Christ in the new creation, and he will receive the judgment on the final day. But everyone else, including the 12, who has left everything to follow Jesus, will flourish in the kingdom of heaven. The losers in the world gain everything. And they'll gain everything because they get Jesus. Now, what must be given up in order to be the loser in the kingdom of heaven? Well, for the rich young man, it was his possessions. And last week, I gave a list that was broader than just possessions. And I did so on the grounds that Jesus is doing that here. Jesus intended the same thing. Certainly, possessions will have a unique hold on your life and your affection. But they're not the only thing that stands in the way from people entering the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus expands your house and all of its projects and all the security it provides and all the status it shows might stand actually between you and the kingdom of heaven. Your family might stand in the way, pressuring you perhaps with the threat of being cut off In fact, they might actually cut you off from relationship and inheritance for following Jesus. He says your land might even, your investment, your status, your work might deter you from following Jesus. All of these things, any of these things must be let go for the sake of following Jesus. And what Jesus is offering here is assurance that it will work out in the end, that it will be worth it, that you will get the return on your investment. Because, in particular, Jesus is better than all of those things. Jesus will do for you what those things could never do for you. And if you come to him, having forsaken all of those things, left them all at the side of the road to get him, you'll get him. And when you get him, you get the only thing, the only person who can satisfy your deepest longing and desire, who can rewire your heart and reorient your life to the way you were designed and created to live. And that's maybe reward enough. And Jesus gives some assurance. It's hyperbolic on the return of the investment. He says, you'll receive a hundredfold. Okay, what does that mean? If you have a house, you sell it and give it to the poor, you get a hundred houses. I have four sisters. So I leave them, and I get 400 sisters? Is that how this works? Is this some kind of contractual bargain? This, is, this kind of handshake is not at all what's in view here. Instead, no, this is a reward. In fact, the word here is you will inherit eternal life. Inherit means you did nothing to earn this. It means that you didn't manipulate the system and figure out how to unlock the cheat code so that you could get exactly what you wanted with giving as little as you could. This reward is an act of grace. You will be met with all of the grace you need. You will be filled with all the comfort and assurance that you gave up in exceeding measure. Jesus is already prepare, preparing for you a place in his heavenly kingdom, and he has surrounded you with people in your midst, in your life hundreds of fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters through his people, the church, and his assurance is that it will be worth it. It'll be worth it. Now, does that make it any easier? On the one hand, what is lost is still lost. What is lost may be lost forever even. And life in this side of the kingdom of heaven, this side of eternity, is mixed with joy and sorrow. There is no, however, sorrow that is pure for those in the kingdom of heaven. Because there is now There is no joy that is pure, but that's true for everyone. But for those in the kingdom of heaven, there is now no sorrow that is purely sorrow because of the promise that Jesus has offered. When we come into the kingdom of heaven, we can look around the room and say, all of us, every single one of us, has some kind of hole. Every one of us has lost or given up something. And it could be your dream, your desire. It could be your family or your property. It could be even your own purpose and power in life. You could have submitted all of that, any of that, to Jesus. We, let's read it again. Thank you. It will be worth it. And you can sing the words of the songs that we sing. Now, they're weird words to sing, if they're not true. That, I know my pain will not be wasted. That's a line we sing regularly. It's a very weird line to sing, if it's not true. You can sing with confidence, with thy favor, loss is gain. We'll sing that in a moment. You can sing with certainty, more than any comfort, Jesus is better And you can sing that because all of us are losers. All of us have given up something in some sense to following Jesus. We're not here as some museum for us to look around and just marvel at how perfect and put together everyone is. This is a hospital. We're all broken in need of being restored and all of us are losers. This is not the team you want to be on if you want to win in the world, but Jesus is promising this is the team that in the end will win. And the point here is not that you'll gain everything in a quantitative restoration, like one and then a hundred, but also in a qualitative way. There is a qualitative improvement in this inheritance. In particular, he says, you'll inherit eternal life. Now, what is eternal life? We certainly have some baggage here. We have baggage probably from the billboards with the little um, gold flashing light in the angel with the wings and the harp, and then the fire in the devil with the trident. Pitchfork, trident. There's baggage, let me just say. So, and, and a lot of that is informed not by the Scriptures as they've been revealed, but by... Pop culture writings, now pop culture writings in particular from like 800 years ago, of Dante and his vision of paradise in which he ascends through these seven layers of heaven, and as long as you did good enough to get on the side of paradise, you would be satisfied, and if you did more, like if you were generous but you had pure motives, you would get a little bit higher in that realm of heaven. And this isn't exactly what Jesus has in mind here, okay? When he says, you'll inherit eternal life. He doesn't have in mind some ethereal and amorphous, uh, blissful existence. Remind you of what he's already been speaking about. He's been speaking of this new creation, this again Genesis, a new way of being. And his perspective on this is not bound by time. Okay, when we think of eternal life, we think of this life, hopefully 80 years, death, and there's a break, and then there is eternal life, and it begins and continues after death. And what Jesus is suggesting here is that eternal life, we think about this really future thing, what Jesus has done in bringing the kingdom of heaven is he has brought it into normal life it is already a reality that's what he's been saying and doing all along you see in this first genesis in this first creation God created humans in his image that they might embrace him and delight in him that they would be satisfied in him that they would live in dependence on him but humans turned their backs on God rejecting him preferring anything else everything else to him. Hoping that they could tip the scales enough that the good would outweigh the bad and they could get back to God. And the mission that Jesus is on right here in this present moment in Matthew is he is inaugurating the kingdom of heaven and it is the mission of a new creation. He is recreating, regenerating reviving old, dead things. In, in fact, He died the death that we deserve to die for our sin so that we might inherit the life that He deserved to have. And that exchange is made in the present when we decide we're giving it all away to follow Jesus. And when we get Him, that exchange is realized. We actually now have the life that He gives. And this is what um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is talking about when it says if anyone is in Christ, so you get Him, you have Him, it says He is a new creation. It means that the people who get Jesus are the new creatures of the new creation that is promised, that Jesus is bringing. That reality is already true. It's present tense. And at the same time, it is not yet fully realized. Friends, it gets better than this. Okay, it might be good now, but the sorrow is still mixed. The joy is still mixed. And one day, they will not be mixed anymore. One day, your joy will have no mix of sorrow in it, it will be complete. And in that creation, that that new creation that you are being made for right now and following Jesus in, there will be no tears because there will be no sorrow. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. And the people who have already gotten Jesus, who get him in this life, will have him then. And that is why these barriers to enter the kingdom of heaven are so weighty, are so significant. That's why we spend so much energy and time at a harvest festival downtown, playing games with kids and talking to strangers, and why we haul around to bins of apples all fall to try to meet people, to, to say, this matters, this thing you've forgotten because you see your house and you see your, your family and you see your land and you see your possessions. This thing matters more than anything you could imagine so my question here for you is are you willing would you give it all up to follow him would you bet the farm that it will be worth it to follow him in this new creation in this new way of being And if you do, you will be a loser. Everyone around you will say their decisions, their reasoning doesn't make any sense, their values don't make sense, they don't have the fanciest stuff, the way they parent their children is weird, the things that matter in an election are weird. They do things that are culturally irrelevant and weird, and the world deems them worthless losers. And Jesus says, Those ones actually win. It'll be worth it. And that's what's happening here in this final verse of chapter 19. This is the assurance that Jesus offers many who are first, who are the winners in the world, will be the last and the last will be first. The winners, as the world defines winning, lose. And the losers, as the world defines losing, win. The kingdom of heaven is upside down in that respect, and there's no greater assurance that Jesus could offer. It will be worth it in the new creation. It will be far better to be a winner in the kingdom of heaven than to have won in the first creation. And it'll be far worse to be a loser in this new creation than it will be to be a loser in this first creation. Now, I I need you to know that I don't make these statements or deliver this sermon lightly. I'm not trying to sell a woman wearing white gloves a ketchup popsicle. I actually believe that this is the way of flourishing I don't ever intend to jump out of an airplane, okay? If there's a one in 100,000 per chance of failure. And what Jesus is offering here is, is the guarantee that it'll, be, it'll work out 100%. And if we're going to bet the farm that Jesus will come through then we'd, be pre- we'd better be pretty certain that it'll work out in the end. And to draw that conclusion, to make that jump, you're going to need faith. You're going to have to believe these words. And if you're going to have faith, really you're going to need to be given faith because it doesn't make sense and so we are right to ask for faith because if you lose everything but you get Jesus it'll be worth it i promise now and in the age to come would you join me as we pray and ask the lord to give us faith father we come to you and we have, we are calculating creatures and we are calculating the stuff we have and the value of the relationships that we have. We're calculating the odds that you'll come through and keep your word. And we're calculating the odds that what we get when we get you will be worth it. And if we admit it, there's, this, there's a gap. So God, would you give us eyes that see Jesus is the all-satisfying, supreme delight that our souls would long for and find in Him the one we desire. Would you give us sight to see value that is invisible, to see meaning and significance that isn't tangible, but that is real. And Lord, would that faith then not just be a moment of deciding to follow Jesus, but would it be our guide and strength as we hold on to following him. And yes, Jesus, would you come soon? In your name, amen.